0: Welcome to another bonus episode, and this one is filled with gold. (laughs) Well, information about gold, I've separated it into three parts. Part one will tell you all about life as a gold prospector. The I guess mid 1800s, and this will give you a personal connection to a typical miner 49er. So what they ate, how they lived, and the tools they used for mining gold. Part two will be a backstory about gold, like why is it considered so valuable, and the final part, part three, will go into the details of the creation and mining of gold veins, and that will help you to imagine exactly how gold was mined and how it was formed. Okay, let's dig in. (laughs) Come on, how could I resist? I had to say that. Part 1. Life as a Gold Prospector The discovery of gold in California occurred in 1848, it began when a man named James Marshall was building a water mill for John Sutter in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains. While at work, he noticed some shining grains in the sand of the water mill, a little of the grains led him to conclude that they were gold. This news spread rapidly all over the world, leading to the California Gold Rush that lasted from 1848 to 1855. During this time, thousands Flocked to California to become a gold prospector and hopefully to strike it rich. Because a huge part of the rush happened in 1849, they were often referred to as minor 49ers. Most of these prospectors were men. Some were also women. So what would a typical person need to be a gold prospector back in 1848? A gold prospector needs little capital, but he must be willing to lead a rough life. He will be more likely to succeed. If he knows something about the different kinds of minerals and rocks, the prospector may have a back horse and a second horse to ride. Or he may just go on foot with maybe just two small donkeys to carry blankets, provisions, and tools. A donkey costs little and will basically live on almost anything. They usually did not carry a huge variety of food. It was usually things like bacon, flour, sugar, coffee. If the prospector had a rifle, then he may hunt to add to his food supply. The prospector didn't really need a road or even a trail. He would probably seek the least known portion of some mountain district in an area where he thinks gold may be found. So through the canyons and over the mountains he goes, either on horseback or driving his donkeys before him. In the desert, prospecting is more difficult and more dangerous for the obvious reasons of the scarcity of water. It is necessary to know the location of the few scattered springs and to have one of the donkeys carry water kegs. That water spring or Any water spring that he finds should be the starting point in the morning, so he makes sure that he travels with the maximum water. A sufficient amount of water must be taken to last until he can get back to the same spring or until he can reach another spring. A pick, a shovel, and a hammer were among the most important parts of any prospector's outfit. Now, gold itself is a very heavy substance, which is what can make it easy to find, as long as you know where to look. As it washes down the sides of mountains and into the gulches from some quartz vein, the heavy weight of the gold will finally take it to the bedrock beneath the sand and the gravel. With his pick and shovel, the prospector can then reach the bedrock get the gold. It's not always so easy as picking up a large nugget of gold. What he has to do is take some of the gravel from the river or the stream and place it in a pan filled with water. And then with that peculiar rotary movement that You've probably seen before. He swishes the pan around. And what that does is it allows the gold to settle. And everything that's lighter than the gold, which would be most everything else, gets washed away with the movement of the water. Now, if there isn't any gold. The prospector then goes on to another creek, but if some of the yellow metal is washed out, he will test the place thoroughly for more gold. The prospector spent his time in the smaller gulches and on the mountainsides looking for ideal ledges and veins that may have gold. If he can find quartz, then that is often a good indication that gold is nearby. Which is easier said than done. It's not usually an easy matter to find a lot of quartz on the mountainside. Days and weeks may pass while searching the slope. But, hopefully with knowledge, experience, and patience, he can find that right ledge and that right little bit of quartz that then leads him to a vein that has gold in it. Using a hammer, he'll break pieces of quartz From the veins, every piece of detached quartz that meets his eye is examined. If he sees any specks of gold, then he gets excited, of course, and he keeps trying to trail back to find the origin of that gold, because there may be a bigger vein with more gold in it. That is the big hope anyway. What he usually just would do is find a piece of quartz that is stained with iron and has the appearance of carrying gold. And then he would put that in his bag so he could examine it more closely later. At camp, he would take those pieces of them to a powder, and then wash them, somewhat in a similar way as when he was panning for gold in the creek. So, now you can see that there are two methods he was using. He could either, either look for the gold that came from the vein in the creek, or he could go to the mountains and try to find those exact veins of gold, where that gold was coming from. Whenever a promising bed of gravel, meaning in a creek, or a vein of gold-bearing quartz in a mountain is found, the prospector would have some important paperwork to do. He needs to post the proper notices of his rights to the claim, and he has to have them recorded at the nearest land office. Now, sometimes it happens that he loses the location of the vein, meaning he forgets where it is, and so he can't go back to the place where he discovered gold. Yeah, (laughs) I would call that a wicked bummer, but what they called it back then was a lost mine, and it would turn into a legend. Prospectors would tell each other of this mine that was found and then lost, and then they all would go hunting for this lost mine. Some men spent years trying to track down a lost mine based on a rumor, but often these lost mines were never found. If the prospector does remember where the vein is located, he now has a big decision to make. Does he want to sell it, or does he want to mine it? Sometimes after discovering a very rich quartz ledge, the prospector would go back to town to see if anyone might be interested in buying it and or developing it. If he decides to mine it himself, then he would make a permanent camp by cutting down trees. In building a cabin, the interior of the cabin would be very simple, just like a table and chairs made out of split lumber. One end of this single room would probably be occupied by a bunk. fireplace. There may not be any windows, and the roof may have been made from earth, meaning dirt, piled on logs, or of long split shingles, which were known as shakes. Frequently, two men would work together to mine a vein, that just made the work less dangerous and, of course, less lonely. If they weren't at once successful, they would just manage in some way to get supplies for a trip each year into the mountains. And often they are grub-staked, which means Some man who has money furnishes their supplies in return for a share in their findings. All of this sounds quite challenging, and it is. But if they have enough to eat, these prospectors in their snug cabin were often comfortable and happy. They would build the cabin as near as possible to the mine, so that way they didn't have to travel far, especially during bad weather. The temperature underground is about the same in both winter and summer, and many of these mines that they had would go deep underground This meant that the winter storms and the summer heat didn't really form a hindrance to their work inside these deep mines. It was a lot of work, but some of these areas were also quite beautiful. Summer is a delightful time at many of these little miners' cabins that were scattered through the mountains. The air was invigorating. The water was pure and cold, kind of serene and peaceful. In the wintertime, he got to kind of sit snugly with his fireplace, with the flames roaring up the chimney. There usually was not a stove, so that means his little cabin would not be filled with smoke. His dishes would be arranged around the fireplace. He did have a kettle for his beans, a coffee pot, and then, it's not a stove, but like a Dutch oven, in which the bread would be baked. And not a Dutch oven the way you (laughs) may have heard of a Dutch oven. This is a real Dutch oven. He may also read old storybooks that would help to pass the time when he couldn't work because it was just too stormy out. You may kind of view these old men in the mountains as maybe kind of cranky, I don't know why I would, but it is believed that these men were often quite hospitable, and an old-time prospector, if you showed up to his cabin, would be quite welcoming to you, and even share any bread that he has with you then while you're there, he'd probably make you some coffee and some beans, and not just be polite, but this was really believed to be the hospitable ways of these prospectors, and the food and the dishes that they created wouldn't look like high cuisine, but Many have said that they never tasted better beans than those which you get from one of their soot-covered kettles. (laughs) So, as you may have heard, very few of these gold prospectors became wealthy, but it is believed that many did just simply enjoy their mountain lifestyle. All right, that is the end of part one, give you a kind of a connection to some of those minor 49ers. Now for part two, which is more of the backstory of gold. Among nearly all the nations of the world, gold has been agreed upon as a standard of exchange. It does have one disadvantage as a medium of exchange. It is really quite soft in its pure form. But this difficulty can be overcome. By combining it with other minerals that increase the firmness, but also should keep that fine gold color. So most initial gold coins were about 92% gold, and then they were combined with metals like silver, copper. others. All right. but what makes gold so valuable? It's a combination of its rarity, its physical properties, and its beauty. To understand these attributes of gold, let's compare gold to platinum silver diamonds. Platinum is far less abundant than gold and has many properties which make it valuable in the arts. Russia did try once to coin platinum into money, but its fluctuating price in world markets made that impractical. Like gold, platinum is malleable and ductile and doesn't tarnish in the air. However, the steel gray color of platinum makes it much less attractive than the yellow glow of gold. So platinum isn't really used for ornamental purposes. What about silver? Silver is brighter and more attractive than platinum. It is so much more abundant than gold, though, that its value has decreased greatly as a commercial article. Now the diamond has a value that far exceeds gold but this value is dependent mostly on its ornamental properties. Unlike soft gold, diamond is very hard and strong and does have the advantage of being useful as an abrasive and as a cutting agent. So, overall, gold It's not the rarest, it's not the strongest, and it's not the most ornamental element. But it has a good balance that makes it appealing and useful for financial, ornamental, and other commercial purposes. Alright, so how is gold? created in the earth and how do people get it out of the earth which we learned a little bit about with the prospectors but now we move on to part three the creation of gold veins and the mining of gold veins gold can be found in very small quantities nearly everywhere. It is present in all the rocks and also in seawater. However, the gold that is distributed in this manner is of no value to us because it would cost many times as much to obtain it as it would be worth. Nature has, however, Concentrated it for us in some places. In portions of the world where the Earth's crust has been folded and broken, there are veins of quartz extending in long, narrow, and irregular sheets through the rocks. This quartz is the home of the gold, and it is usually found in hilly or mountainous regions. In the Pacific Slope, minerals are now being deposited in some of the openings of the rocks where hot springs reside. These minerals, such as quartz, Yellow iron pyrites and gold can combine together to form gold veins. The heat and the pressure of these hot springs can dissolve the minerals in the rocks. Those dissolved minerals are then pushed to the surface and deposited as solid particles again in the form of veins. These veins will appear in the fissures of the rocks through which streams from the spring are flowing. As the rocks on the surface decay and the crumbling material is carried away by running water, the gold being very heavy washes down the hillsides and then it gathers in gulches. This explains why we find gold both in veins in mountainsides and in the gravel at the bottom of the streams, getting the gold. From the mountain veins is called quartz mining. Washing gold from the gravel in creeks and rivers is called placer mining. During and after the gold rush, there was a lot of talk about the mother lode of California. Now. This is not Motherlode, L-O-A-D, but rather Motherlode, L-O-D-E, which refers to a huge gold vein in California. And every miner wished that his mine was on this famous Motherlode. This Motherlode was made up of a large number of quartz veins extending along the western slope of the Sierra Nevada mountains. Hundreds of mines were dotted along the mother lode. In a similar manner, a line of towns marks the length of the mother lode for over a hundred miles. These towns were almost entirely supported by the gold which the load supplied. Much of the gold first discovered in California was placer gold, meaning gold acquired from the gravel of streams. After the miners had worked over the stream gravels, and it secured all that they could in that way. They began to search for the gold veins in the mountains. It could not have always been in the creek beds, and the miners were correct in thinking that it must have washed from some other place. Gold was so frequently found in pieces of loose or floating quartz that this fact finally turned their attention to the quartz veins which were numerous on the mountain slopes then came the discovery of this series of great quartz veins now known as the mother lode when the miners First found the quartz flecked with gold. They used the simplest means for separating the two substances. If the quartz was very rich in gold, it was pounded and ground fine in a hand mortar. Then the lighter quartz was washed away was left behind. Not all quartz veins do carry gold. There are many veins in which not a single speck of the precious metal can be found. Along the mother lode, however, gold is
1: sometimes found in little bunches
0: and stringers scattered through the slate such cases, the slate is mined and sent to the mill. Some miners devote themselves to pocket mining. They trace the little seams in the rock, and when two seams cross, they sometimes find what they call a pocket. This pocket is a mass of nearly pure gold, of an irregular shape, varying from a few dollars to thousands of dollars in value. This kind of mining is very uncertain in its results, for a man may make hundreds of dollars in one day and then not find anything more for several months. In some portions of the mountains, hydraulic mining was more common than quartz mining. Years ago, many of the rivers occupied different channels from their present ones. The gravels of these old channels in the Sierra Nevada mountains were rich in gold. In these channels, The gold is so deeply buried that it can't usually be obtained by means of pick and shovel. In order that the overlying gravel be removed as cheaply as possible, water is supplied by means of ditches, often many miles long. From a nearby hill, the stream would be diverted down to the mine in strong iron pipes. It thus acquired a great force, and when directed against a gravel bank, it rapidly washed it away. Torrents of water-bearing boulders, gravel, sand, and gold particles were then run through sluice boxes Collect the gold. The mother lode, and the California Gold Rush, are now a distant memory. The western slope of the Sierra Nevada mountains was once covered with the camps of thousands of placer miners. Piles of boulders and gravel scattered witness to where the eager workers took out millions of dollars' worth of gold dust and nuggets. But the biggest thing these prospectors left behind is new settlements and towns, many which still exist today. Of course, these towns now thrive on new industries, but they are always thankful to the gold rush
1: that gave them birth. This is the end of the bonus episode.
0: I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you for supporting this podcast. I deeply appreciate it.